Hi, this is Jeff Steele. Today we are reading Daniel 11, verses 2 through 20. It says, Now then, I will reveal the truth to you. Three more Persian kings will reign, to be succeeded by a fourth far richer than the others. He will use his wealth to stir up everyone to fight against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will rise to power who will rule with great authority and accomplish everything he sets out to do. But at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. It will not be ruled by the king's descendants, nor will the kingdom hold the authority it once had, for his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will increase in power, but one of his own officials will become more powerful than he and will rule his kingdom with great strength. Some years later, an alliance will be formed between the king of the north and the king of the south. The daughter of the king of the south will be given in marriage to the king of the north to secure the alliance, but she will lose her influence over him, and so will her father. She will be abandoned along with her supporters. But when one of her relatives becomes king of the south, he will raise an army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and defeat him. When he returns to Egypt, he will carry back their idols with him, along with priceless articles of gold and silver. For some years afterward, he will leave the king of the north alone. Later, the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will soon return to his own land. However, the sons of the king of the north will assemble a mighty army that will advance like a flood and carry the battle as far as the enemy's fortress. Then, in a rage, the king of the south will rally against the vast forces assembled by the king of the north and will defeat them. After the enemy army is swept away, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will execute many thousands of his enemies, but his success will be short-lived. A few years later, the king of the north will return with a fully equipped army far greater than before. At that time, there will be a general uprising against the king of the south. Violent men among your own people will join them in fulfillment of this vision, but they will not succeed. Then the king of the north will come and lay siege to a fortified city and capture it. The best troops of the south will not be able to stand in the face of the onslaught. Then the king of the north will march onward unopposed. None will be able to stop him. He will pause in the glorious land of Israel, intent on destroying it. He will make plans to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will form an alliance with the king of the south. He will give him a daughter in marriage to, and in order to overthrow the kingdom from within, but his plan will fail. After this, he will turn his attention to the coastland and conquer many cities. But a commander from another land will put an end to his insolence and cause him to retreat in shame. He will take refuge in his own fortress, but will stumble and fall and be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor, but after a very brief reign, he will die, though not from anger or in battle. Okay, so there's a lot that's going on in here. When you read it, it feels like a Tolkien novel. You know, this is like it's like a Lord of the Rings kind of uh, battles and uh, armies and fortresses and things. Um, if you enjoy internet rabbit holes, uh, Google Daniel 11, just type Daniel 11 into Google and, uh, start doing a little digging lots and lots and lots of discussion around this text. So, um, I don't want to follow, uh, (laughs) some of those rabbit rabbit holes too far, but, um, let me just try to give you the super quick version. I don't want to go into real depth. I I really want to move on to other things, but, um, Daniel's prophecy here is a continuation of what began um, earlier in chapter 10. And the date that is given for the chapter 10 vision is the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, which would be somewhere in the middle of the 6th century BC. So um, the reason that is important is because this text that I just read is so detailed 
and it mirrors events recorded in history so closely. Um, this is more than just like saying, oh, some king came to power and then his kingdom collapsed and then somebody else comes to power. Um, this is very different. And this is very different than the the very general prophecies, the things that are much harder to interpret. This text names, uh, I mean, it doesn't name specific battles, but it tells about battles and it tells about alliances. It tells about political struggles. Um, there's a mighty king who rises to power and then his kingdom is divided into four pieces, but none of them are going to be ruled by his descendants. So that happened. That definitely happened. And it happened, it wasn't until the later part of the 4th century BC, which is more than 200 years after Daniel's vision. In 336 BC, a king came to power who you could definitely call a mighty king. Actually, the word that the world came to know him by was not mighty, it was great. His name was Alexander. And upon Alexander the Great's death, his kingdom was divided up by his four generals, not his sons, his generals, who then fought amongst themselves for the next 40 years. Um, so as modern scholars look at this, uh, they will say, well, clearly the book of Daniel couldn't have been written until after the time of Alexander the Great. So um, there is a lot of attention paid to archaeological evidence fragments of the book of Daniel as they were discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, how we date those, whether those um, fragments support an early or later dating of the book of Daniel. Lots and lots and lots of rabbit holes that you could go down on this one. But as fascinating as I think all the history is, at the end of the day, I am really more of a big picture kind of guy. So when it comes to prophecies like this one or other prophecies in the Bible that are more apocalyptic in nature, there is always a big picture behind it all. Every battlefield movie that you've ever seen, especially stuff that was set in history, like I'm thinking Gladiator or Braveheart, okay? You kind of have that mental image. There's lines of troops facing off across a field ready to attack. The king or the general walks up and down in front of the troops and he delivers this stirring speech and inspires the army to go and fight, right? So what do they fight for? They fight for honor. They fight for their homelands. They fight for glory. They fight for their king and their country. And every man is convinced by the righteousness of his cause. Everyone is willing to take the chance that they will die in order to defend it. So when I read a text like this and I think about ancient wars and ancient battles, things that are more than 2,000 years removed in history, um, I think about the, the rank-and-file soldier. And, and I think they lived and they died. And I wonder for what? Was it for kings to increase their power? Was it for the enlargement of their territory? Um, ultimately, it was because probably somebody had something that someone else wanted. And so now men must go and die in battle to either obtain it or defend it. Those rank and file soldiers, all they probably wanted to do was to go home and be with their families. So from hundreds of years distant 
in history, it just seems so pointless. How many kings and kingdoms fought for a scrap of earth to call their own, and what did they really gain? Alexander certainly earned a place in history. He even got a pretty cool nickname, you know? Cool. Good for you, I guess. But the thing is, he may have never lost a battle, but he still died eventually. Um, actually fairly young. And if you want to follow an interesting rabbit hole, Google, how did Alexander the Great die? <laughs> um, lots of fun reading there as well. But all those moments that, uh, that he thought were so significant and so important and so worth dying and killing for, they're, they're just a footnote in history now. So Daniel is prophesying about wars and kingdoms, all of which, at least to this point in chapter 11, have all faded from memory. And what once seemed so important and necessary and like world changing, the whole world like turns on these events. Now they're just obscurities that we remember only as answers to trivia questions. Daniel lived and served through some really tumultuous times in history. And I think what makes him so interesting and so relevant to us today is that he didn't lose sight of the big picture. The world was in upheaval. Kingdoms rose and kingdoms fell as thousands of people lived and died for kings who fought and schemed and conquered. But the man of God had something bigger to hold on to. Daniel had an ultimate belief in understanding that history, history is only a short time when it's held in God's hand. All the wars and conquests and kingdoms can't really even begin to compare with that. So what's a king's plan for the coming year compared with God's plan for all eternity? Why worry so much about the one which is going to fade in significance and be forgotten when God's kingdom is only going to grow and grow? And when I read about the prophets who are living in exile, Daniel was living and serving in Babylon, not his home country. I see men of God who didn't get lost in the details and the timelines of their day. People who lived knowing that all the world and all the history is a moment in God's kingdom. And that's important because the same is true for us today. The things that we live and fight and die for, those things are going to be forgotten someday. And as cool as it would be to have a nickname like The Great in the history book someday, ultimately, I don't know how much that matters. Ultimately, wouldn't it be better to be part of what God is doing in the here and now instead of trying to make a name for myself? So having zoomed out to the thousand year view of history, we zoom back in uh, to today. What do I do with that? How do I live today? How do I invest my time and my passion and my energy into something that matters? Because what has God called you to do and to contribute to in big ways or in small ways? Where is God inviting you to join him? Because that, I'm going to suggest, that is the work that lasts. That is the contribution that will still matter tomorrow or next year or in a thousand years. And let's not settle for anything less. Let's pray. God, um, you alone hold history. And that's why you can, I mean, when you tell what's going to happen 200 years in the future, um, we should probably take notice that your view of history is different than ours. And um, so, God, thank you for that. Thank you for showing that and demonstrating that you can do that um, throughout history. And thank you for holding us in the palm of your hand. And whatever plan that is, whatever part you have in that um, for us to play, I, I pray that you uh, would show it, that you would reveal it to us and that we'd follow. Um, God, give us uh, energy and give us passion towards things that matter and um, toward things that are ultimately valuable in your kingdom. And may we not settle for anything less than that in your name. Amen. Have a great day.